Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Crohn's Cast Live. As we've been doing over this month, focusing on women's health and joining our women folk on their journeys with IBD. Tonight we've got a really special guest. We've got Neil, all the way over from America, who's an MD specialist uh, within the IBD um, world. And if you haven't heard of him, he goes by the logo of Fit with MD. And he is so qualified um, to talk about this topic. I've never had a more qualified guest. Um, I've went, I had the privilege of scrolling through his CV um, over the last couple of weeks. And all I can say is I'm completely humbled by this guy's uh, medical experiences and the stuff that he does both on and off social media for our community. Um, just to give you a couple of snippets from it is... He's the executive board member for the Crohn's Colitis Foundation chapter in Pennsylvania. He's also the editorial board member for social media for two of the main journals in America, which is the IBD Journal and the Crohn's and Colitis 360 Journal. So with those bombshells dropped and no further ado, I'm going to welcome Neil into the room. Thank you so much, Johnny, for having me. I'm, I'm a very nice introduction. Thank you so much. And I'm just really blessed to, to join you and your entire community here. Yeah, it's absolutely fabulous. For uh, In case I've missed anything, do you want to um, fill the guys in on any, any gaps that you feel I maybe have left out of that introduction? Sure, sure. You know, I'm a IBD-specific physician, so we call ourselves IBDologists. Um, I only take care of Crohn's and colitis patients, and, and things that I enjoy doing for my patients are uh, advocacy for medications, uh, education through social media, um, some of my clinical and research specialties are doing stool transplants uh, for recurrent C. difficile for patients who have Crohn's or colitis. Um, so it's a very niche type of uh, uh, service that I provide. Uh, my handle is called FitWitMD, Fitness Witness, because fitness has, uh, I've been a witness to the benefits of fitness. It's changed the lives of myself. And in fact, true story, it's actually... IBD warriors who have been fantastic, you know, athletes who have actually been my inspiration uh, to actually get fit myself uh, many years ago. Um, so I look, kind of live and breathe Crohn's and colitis um, and why I am a Crohn's and colitis doctor in part, uh, many life stories. One of them, uh, my father was diagnosed with Crohn's in the 1970s and was on prednisone uh, forever and, and had horrible side effects and, and complications from it. And that stuck for me from, with me for a long time and kind of was one of the main factors that kind of led me to my career today. That's really interesting because that was actually going to be one of my uh, first questions off the bat was like, I do find it interesting how doctors find their way into specific fields of medicine. And, uh, but yeah, like to have an experience of a family member going through that, it's, it's got to be a big draw. Yeah. Um, so how long have you worked in this field for, if you don't mind me asking? Well, um, I graduated uh, medical school in the year 2005 and did uh, several, six more years of training, six, seven more years of training. And then I finished all that formal training uh, in gastroenterology with a focus in IBD uh, in 2012. So it's been just about eight years. So what's been the main things for you that, um, that you feel you've learned from like your IBD patients? Um, be resilient, <laughs> be resilient. Um, you know, Crohn's and colitis patients, they have had, they, they've had such challenges put in their way 
um, that they never asked for, they did nothing to deserve. And so when I try to empathize with the symptoms that they're uh, you know, before them, the decisions that they have to make for their bodies and for their families, um, it puts life into perspective. And for me, that's probably the biggest thing, you know, taking um, uh, appreciation for the life that I have, the service that I can provide my patients. And, you know, it helps give me kind of the strength as a physician, especially in 2020 with everything going on, to have the strength, right? The stamina, the endurance to help uh, be there part of my patient's care team. So, you know, I, it sounds crazy, but like IBD patients have been inspiring to me, you know, um, for how I function in my own life. No, that's beautiful. Um, so one of the main topics that we're talking about tonight is uh, women's health. And there's, there's a number of taboos, I feel, that we're, we're going to, to cover in that. Um, but before we get stuck into it, I just wanted to talk about like your, your social media influence and your, your sort of effect you hope to have from social media. Like, is, what is it about social media that you find is so important for our community? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Johnny. Um, you know, this is a totally unplanned question, so I love that you asked this question. I'll be honest, in 2016 is when I got on social media, and I had, um, I was reluctant because I was a, I'm a busy physician. I'm taking care of my patients, but I got online because my Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, the national board, had asked me to do some education on online. So I created a, you know, a professional account, got online. Um, it was a great session. But then it was the aftermath, right? The, the positive aftermath, all the feedback that came afterwards. I had all these patients coming forth, asking all these questions, putting forth all these myths and misconceptions. And I found that just by being online, by being a presence, by speaking truth, evidence-based medicine, man, I had such a huge impact on correcting these myths and misconceptions. And then I had people you know, online who came and sought me out or who I helped direct to other IBD doctors around the country um, if they weren't local. And I found that it made a difference, right? It connected us closer and it got the right information in the right hands of the patients. So for me, it's the connection to the patient or the caregiver, the spouse, the family member. I do a lot of education to doctors and that is very helpful to educate the doctors, elevate their knowledge so they give the best medicines, the best treatment, the best nutritional advice to patients. But I found when I can teach the patient or their spouse or support system, if I can teach them, they can bring that to their own doctor. So by advocating for better patient education, I have observed that patient care gets better. You can only get so far with, the, with, with other docs and, and advanced care practitioners. But if you cater to the, to the patient who's looking for this information actively, then you can improve care. So that's probably the biggest impact of why I'm on social media. I think it's the biggest and easiest way to disseminate inf information. It's, it's just as easy as sending email, um, but way more effective, way more easy to communicate through video, um, through any platform. So it's been a powerful tool to reach to patients and give them the right information. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things I find totally is that the, the process and the ability to to reach people via social media and and send those messages, it's such an effective tool, like you just said, and I think it's it's a very powerful and informative way to do it. Yeah. And I think the best thing about it is that it actually makes 
you guys, the doctors, the medical team, a bit more human, a bit more, you know, you, you see a bit more of who you are as a person, as opposed to a person in a lab jacket that only sees me when I'm not well. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a really important aspect for creating that sort of uh, doctor patient or med MDT um, patient relationship. Um, but yeah, like one of the things I wanted to talk about with you is um, it's something that's been quite prevalent in the UK in terms of, of surgery or medical or, or, or medicine, managing with surgery or medicine. Mm-hmm. And it, it had been quite a debate. And I just wanted to chat to you about like, what's your stance and where, 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 what sort of line of questioning or would you give with someone with IBD and how would you sort of start that process if they were, I think I'm talking a bit, bit of tongues here, but basically, how do you how do you manage the medicine for a patient, and when do you start to think that surgery is becoming a, a, an option, and when do you start having that discussion? Yeah, good question. So I think that when you first meet patients, um, many patients do not. That's not the first thing you bring up. That's that's not usually the right decision to to take. I think it helps to educate patients about just the illness. You know, in the very beginning of the stages of when you're diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, there's a lot of shock, right? Mm-hmm. I can speak, but if I'm that patient, I'm probably not listening to most of what I'm talking about, right? Or, or it's too much, it's information overload, right? Doctors, yeah. well, you can tell I like to talk, right, Johnny? <laughs> so we can talk too much, we can talk over their heads, and that is ineffective, it's a waste of time, it's not doing the patient a service. So what I often do, and I hope there are other practitioners even listening, um, I have gotten positive feedback by doing this, which is I speak to patients and I stop a lot. I pause and I check in with them. And I sometimes have them repeat it back to me or ask them a question about what I said. But no matter what I do, every one or two minutes, I stop to say, are are you with me? Do you have any questions about that? That keeps the pace. And then I paint the natural history of whichever disease state they may have. Now, if there's anything I've learned, everyone's Crohn's is not the same. Everyone's ulcerative colitis is not the same. They're very different. There's a lot of different factors. Um, when it comes to medicine or surgery or overall management, um, apart from what the academic book says or the, or the guidelines say, a big factor in decision-making is what the patient wants, right? Because they're thinking, well, you know, the factors that affect them are what they want. How does it affect their family? How does it affect their job? You know, what, what will others think, right? So I try to get a sense of what's important to them. Um, when it comes to talking about medicines or surgery, I, I focus a lot on natural history um, because I say, you know, this is a journey. This is a starting point. And there are certain things, clinical risk factors in your history that suggest that you may benefit from medicines or benefit from surgery, either early or late. Everyone's different, right? And I paint both those routes. My stat, my standpoint for the majority of my patients, okay, there are exceptions, of course, are that most patients um, are going to benefit from some type of medical management well before surgery. Even if they may need surgery, they need to be optimized for surgery at some point, right? So we're talking about simple things, hydration, nutrition being paramount, so um, I try to focus on those subject matters first. And I think that helps build rapport. I get to learn about them um, before we come to the surgical standpoint. But 
I think I customize it to every single patient. And I think, again, that's something you really have to, to concentrate on and have to do um, because obviously every single person, that's one of the things as well I've really noticed um, with IBD is it's such an individual disease. And mm -hmm. every I've not met a person yet where the experience has been identical. So it's so difficult. I, mean, like, I, don't, I don't know what your thoughts are um, at the minute, but like even trying to create, I think, is it a pathology? Is that the right term of phrase? Of how that disease comes about is, is it almost seems like it's just spontaneous. You know, there, there are there are markers like stress or hereditary, um, but there's no there's no consensus like overall that says this is how someone gets IBD. Right. I think you're talking about the the pathogenesis is the term like how you know what are the factors that cause your inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, we spend a lot of time on that because patients are always asking, "What did I do? What did I do?" And they did nothing. It's interesting, you know, if you think about the pathogenesis or cause of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, we we look towards twin studies. So in, in real life, this has been done. You go to a twin convention, okay, and you set up a booth, you know, saying calling all Crohn's patients, calling all ulcerative colitis patients or, or in between, right? And they come up, right? And you find one twin who has the IBD and the other twin who doesn't, right? Wow. Now, to date, there are over 270 genes that have been identified to be associated with the pathogenesis of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. But there's not one single gene that causes it. It's not like a Mendelian trait, okay, where, you, where you know, your mom and dad have it, so you have it, right? Or one of them has it and you have it. This is a very complex. So 270 genes associated with IBD, not a one alone, causes it. And when you take twin studies, you find that the, with the genetics being the same, the genetics may only account for 5 to 20% of Crohn's and 5 to 30% of ulcerative colitis. So that begs the question, that's not a lot, right? What's the bulk of that? What's the other you know, 80%? What's the other 70% of Crohn's and colitis? And it comes down to being environmental. And environmental is this huge umbrella term, huge umbrella term for you know, things like tobacco or antibiotics or you know, toxins in the environment, nutrition, right? Uh, medical events, you know, how, you know, you know, illness events that might have triggered the inflammatory bowel disease. But the environmental aspect is that big unknown that in this last decade, you know, in, in the 2010 to 2020 range, a lot more sophisticated science and epidemiological studies are being done to try to investigate. They're, they're trying to start to figure and tease this out. But by and large, we still do not have the best understanding of what the pathogenesis or cause of Crohn's and colitis is, but we do know that there are multiple causes. You know, in the future, we're going to call, uh, we're not going to call all Crohn's Crohn's. We're going to call it Crohn's one, you have Crohn's type one through 100, or ulcerative colitis type one through 500, okay? Because we're going to identify different causes for different individuals' illness. Another way to think about this is if you see a huge, beautiful bridge, right, um, crossing the channel, okay, you know it exists, you drive up to go see it, and when you drive up there and you see, you see it's in shambles, it's completely destroyed from one end to the other. 
but you don't know which truss or which bridge, which suspension string or which support structure, shall I say, was at fault, right? Any one of those areas could have been at fault and the bridge collapsed. And that's much akin to what we're talking about when it comes to with the pathogenesis of ID. Any multiple causes, multiple areas or hits to that bridge could cause your type of IBD. So what we call the endpoint, right, of Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis is not so simple. The disease implies a simple diagnosis. It's not. It's much more complex than that. Mm. That's why, you know, a lot of the work that's being done in, in terms of medicine and nutritional management is so critical because we're finding there's not just one drug. There's not just one nutritional therapy for all. There's probably hundreds, okay? Um, so I've kind of gone off on a tangent because I could, I think it's fascinating about oh, Yeah, I think, I think that in itself, you're right. It is an exceptionally fascinating um, part of, well, disease study. Um, the, and I guess as well, that, that would, in layman's terms, that would help people understand a lot more why there's such a variety of within the, within a patient's um, field of how people are actually tolerating and coping with the disease. So, yeah. like from for example, for myself, I've got indeterminate Crohn's colitis. Um, the doctors feel that it's so. In my conversation with the doctor, he feels like it's it's Crohn's. It just hasn't shown up anywhere else. Yeah, so we can't say for sure that it's Crohn's, but it's like so at the minute it's an indeterminate diagnosis, which is fair enough. But um, but then I look at other people that have got Crohn's disease or have got a ver variation of IBD or an indeterminate diagnosis, and they are in so much more pain or having to manage it in such a more severe way, and it almost feels like I have my own issues with it. But I sometimes, and I've said this to one of the girls I follow um, called um, Yvonne, that sometimes I feel like a bit of a fraud within our, within our sort of community group because I don't have that many issues or I'm not constantly going in for surgery or things aren't generally failing for me because of IBD. I'm like, well, do I have a problem? <laughs> is, is, is there oh, a problem? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, I, I don't think... Um... It's one thing for you to feel that way, but hopefully nobody ever made you feel that way because you know you you've put in your time, shall I say? You've had your share of challenges, I'm sure to say the least. Um, I think which how you feel is natural, but no doubt, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but no doubt, I'm sure you've had your challenges. You know, just talking to you just before the show, I know you've been through, let's just say, heck, right, uh, to get where you are today and as fit and as healthy as you are today, but. Um, you're right. At the end of the day, um, what you said earlier is really, really important for patients to understand that it's not accurate. It's not fair to yourself to compare your disease to someone else's. It's natural to do that. It's a natural thing, but it's not fair to you to compare yourself to someone else who has the same label. Like you said, there's Crohn's, there's ulcerative colitis, there's indeterminate colitis, which affects 10 to 15% of our patients. And then on another end, we have microscopic colitis, collagenous colitis, lymphocytic colitis. All this is a very complex spectrum, and everyone is on that spectrum at different points. Different factors create your illness. It's unfair to compare where you are to someone else. And also, it's a lifelong journey, 
right? So mm. I'm happy for you, Johnny, that um, there has been no additional manifestations. And um, knowing who you are on this channel, you know, you kind of live and breathe, you know, fitness and wellness. And you're as proactive as I would want all my patients to be when it comes to advocating for their own health. This show is an embodiment of your proactiveness, right? But um, that's something that some of our patients do lose track of, right? There are things, some things that are in their control, such as eating healthy, even when they're eating healthy, when they're well. Um, yeah. Often the, the people eat unhealthy when they're well. And then when they're in a flare, uh, they, can't, they, don't, they can't eat. It's, it's painful to eat. And they haven't stocked their body with the healthy building blocks to repair itself, right? So that's just an example of how um, you can advocate yourself through things you can control, even though they may not seem like a lot, but controlling your fitness, your endurance, your hydration, what you put into your body, those are things that, and, and then how you, how you think, how you internalize, um, uh, and, and your mental outlook, that's very key to battling this, this disease. Yeah, totally. And I think that's, that's a, a huge factor is our understanding of our own body and, and how to actually look after it as, as best we can, particularly when you're dealing with a chronic disease. And as you know, it's, I work within the rehabilitation world as an exercise physiologist, and that's one of the things that we try to focus on most. And I think you mentioned it earlier in particular with how you your stance on social media and what you try to do through social media. We try to do that through our therapies as well as essentially give the patient the tools to do it themselves, be through education and through, and through practical education. And that's so important whenever they're going for surgeries or recovering from surgeries is that nutrition element and just trying to look after your body as best as possible, which kind of brings me on nicely in a, in a sort of segue way. Um, to like body positivity and things like that, something that I find particularly within the IBD community can be something of a struggle and in particular for, for our women folk. I just wonder what's, what's your thoughts on body positivity and how would you go about improving that maybe? Yeah. So, um, you know, but there's a lot of different terms for it, body positivity. If you were to look up papers on this, um, we call it body image dissatisfaction in the Crohn's and colitis literature. Um, it's been well looked at. Um, you don't have to have IBD to know that the world we live in today is entirely image conscious. Um, it's it's uh, unreal ideas of beauty, and uh, you know it's it's a very hypocritical society. Then you layer that with the side effects of medications, namely prednisone, where you get stretch marks and hair on your face, acne, swelling, you know, uh, moon faces, um, a buffalo hump, you know, all from chronic prednisone. Then you add on uh, any disfigurement uh, that you may perceive from scars, right? Um, mm -hmm. from, sur from surgery, all of these things. And then malnutrition, right? Malnutrition can lead to hair loss and uh, you know, flaking skin, um, cracks around the lips and, 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 and uh, beefy red tongue from B-complex deficiencies. All of this that I just layered, right, contributes to body image dissatisfaction. And, uh, you know, patients who are being uh, challenged with this don't need 
that societal pressure of looking pretty or looking handsome uh, on top of it all. So I think that when it comes to a clinic, right? When a, when a patient comes to clinic, we don't spend a lot of time talking about it. I'll be honest, when I trained, <laughs> we never talked about um, body image satisfaction or sexuality or intimacy uh, in training, partly because it, 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 our, our mentors at the time, it wasn't a focus of theirs. They weren't trained, so they didn't train us to think about it, right? We focused on just the pain or the diarrhea or the next medication or the lab abnormality. But it was the very few, um, but, many, but several exceptions throughout my career, who stopped to ask the patient, how are you? Setting forth a good example for me to think, how are you? It wasn't until I finished all those years of training, you know, 13, 14 years of schooling and training, once I got into practice, it took my own patience, I'm ashamed to say, but to teach me to ask about this topic today, this intimacy aspect, the body image aspect. And I realized that um, I was very interested in this. So I've you know, done some research into this field, uh, you know, published over here in the States about it. And now in my clinic, what we find a time uh, for most of our patients to ask about how they feel about their body, about their sex life, about their dating life, you know, or just their social life, you know, how, how's, and, and their mental health. So I think, uh, you know, body image is something we should ask our patients because sometimes they haven't even thought about it themselves, but they mm -hmm. may have a poor self image. Um, and it's helpful from the get go to tell patients that, hey, you're gonna be on, especially adolescents, you're gonna be on prednisone, you may see some weight gain or acne or hair where it's not growing, right? Give them the heads up. Um, so that they're not shocked, right? Um, and then give them a plan. How do you get off the prednisone? Or how do you help minimize scar? Or just reinforce that, gosh, you know what? You're beautiful. You're perfect just the way our, you know, sc you know, scalpel incision or not. We need more of that, but we need the doctor to do it, the nurse to do it, the family member to do it, the best friend to do it, and the patient to know it. Yeah, I think that, that it's, do you feel like that's, this is a growing element of patient care now, like where we, we need to have that? I think, yeah, absolutely. So I think that what's awesome, uh, what I'm proud about in, in, in IVD, and I'll tell you, uh, oncology, oncology has done this um, b first before any other subspecialty of medicine in cancer, where they're very interdisciplinary compared to other specialties of medicine. But I am a little biased when I say this, but I think that inflammatory bowel disease, at least where I practice, we have become increasingly more thoughtful and interdisciplinary, but we have a long way to go. Um, we are starting to incorporate access to mental health care services in our clinic, which traditionally in the United States is not very well covered financially, or there's poor access, there's poor recognition of anxiety and depression. Um, it's very difficult here to implore, employ a enterostomal nurse in most practices. Um, but in our health system, we have uh, enterostomal nursing access, which has been huge, right? For our mm -hmm. patients to troubleshoot their ostomies um, or troubleshoot their wound healing after surgery. So we're starting to get the pieces, but we have a long way to go. I think what's refreshing to me is that not just myself, my colleagues 
and um, you know my, my superiors who help support the work that I do. They're supportive. They're supportive. They they recognize it. And I would I would say, and I don't think this is too arrogant, but like 10, 15 years ago, there this didn't exist. This wasn't a topic of our, our focus in the clinic at all. And now and now things are changing, but they're just changing. We we have to push it. And that's why, again, like I say, I'm lucky here. I'm going out there trying to help educate more clinicians. Um, but I think the people can, who can help drive this into the clinic are the patients. Patients don't feel like they can speak up often. That's not true of all patients. But many patients tell me they don't feel like they can speak up. They don't think that they should bring up their body image or their sexual like with their gastroenterologist. Like, what's he going to do? He just, he's just a stool doctor, a poop doctor. That's true. But if they don't, if you bring it up to that doctor, guess what? They may not have all the answers, but they know how to plug you in to the specialist who can help you with some of your concerns. You know, and we'll, we'll talk more about them, but, you know, sex counselors and therapists, urogynecologists, um, pelvic floor therapists, OB specialists, right? There's, there's, and there's more, you know? So I think uh, patients can also bring these issues up and hopefully with this broadcast, be more empowered to bring it up to their doctor. Because we'll go through the list. There's many different types of specialists who can help with issues of body image or sexual um, dissatisfaction. Do you think um, it's, it's becoming or, or is linked potentially to sort of mental health and the changes, maybe some form of adaptation syndrome or something like that, particularly uh, maybe for people that have to get ostomies? And because that's quite a significant change to your, your outer self. Yeah. You know, I don't think that we have done enough to mentally, psychologically prepare patients. Now, um, I believe you have the, you, you mentioned the same equivalent organization in the UK here in America and at my own local site, um, we have the United Ostomy Associates of America. UOAA. They've got a, a, it's a nonprofit in full disclosure. I'm on the, the medical advisory board of that organization here in the, in the States, but they have all this free published educational information about ostomies for any condition, any reason. In addition, what we have taken advantage of is they have a, a fleet of volunteers who are trained ostomate patients themselves who um, I have called upon um, on many occasion at this point to actually talk to a patient going in for ostomy surgery. They're not necessarily a trained therapist or psychologist, but they're a patient who has experienced some of the emotions and feelings that my patient in the hospital or outpatients going is, is experiencing now, right? So talking to another patient who's been through it, that is one form of addressing the psychological aspect that's been very effective, but we, we can do more. Um, and again, a lot of that is setting up expectations, you know, dedicating a whole visit just to talking about life with an ostomy. Um, what do you think, Johnny? You know, in, in here, when I'm online, I get so irritated when I hear someone say that a colectomy is a cure <laughs> for colitis. It's not a cure, right? I mean, have you heard that before? Yeah, I have, and it's it's. I feel like it's a misnomer. Well, well, or well, it is a misnomer. It's not a cure, but it, it, in a way, I can see where that perspective can come from. 
Yeah. Um, obviously, like if if they are 100% some uh, ulcerative colitis and it's only affecting their large bile, which is obviously what the diagnosis means, um, then technically they no longer have the disease. So in a roundabout way, they can you can get away with it. But yeah, it's not a cure. And I feel that sometimes the labour on that perspective maybe reduces the the want or the urge or the need to progress in researching the disease and finding an actual cure because yeah. people and i i know doctors that have said that yeah having the surgery I, is the cure i think from the patient perspective it's an okay term but there's a lot of nuance there to, to kind of review and the reason i gave that as an example is because it's really trading one state of being flaring, dehydration, malnutrition for another, an ostomy, which can also lead to dehydration, maybe not anemia, but dehydration um, and having the ostomy. But when we do a colectomy, let's just make it simple for ulcerative colitis, um, we may still leave a part of the rectal pouch if you haven't had a, a proctectomy done, if, if there's a plan to reconnect and make a J pouch. If there is a J pouch made, well, technically you have not had a total colectomy. You've had a subtotal colectomy, meaning there's some anal cuff or some anal rectal cuff to which to stitch the new small intestine to. So there is that little cuff can actually still continue to be inflamed with the same disease process that causes the ulcerative colitis. So for me, there's, there, there's um, I've, I've tried to become more sensitive about the types of words that we use and how patients may interpret that, right? Um, and, and what the word cure means. But I think it's a, it is definitely a misconception or misnomer. I think that, um, again, dedicating a visit when it comes to having an ostomy made is really important. Like you can have a, and it may take one, two or three conversations um, and then giving patients resources, homework, if you will, and talking to another patient, writing all their questions and then bringing them back. If there's the luxury of that time, oftentimes uh, there is no luxury of that time and patients understandably will not give their permission for the colectomy because they still have a lot of um, unanswered questions or stress about it. So they may suffer for a very long time before they ultimately go through with it. And in that time, I always think, if I think that that's where it's going, I think to myself, all right, I can't force this decision for the patient, even if I, as the physician, think it's the right thing for the patient. Maybe the best thing to do, and when I say maybe, the best thing to do, <laughs> it's not maybe, it is, um, is to give them more information, more resources. So I introduced them to my ostomy uh, colleagues, my, my ostomy patient volunteers. I, I introduced them to the right websites. I introduced them to Crohn's Cast Live, you know, to get more opinions and, and, and more, more information. Because the more they start thinking about it, then the more, you know what? Case in point, Johnny. This was last night. I have a young lady. Uh, who is 22, who has had severe disease um, since she was age six and a half. Um, wow. And I just met her for the first time uh, about two, two weeks ago. She had been, just been discharged from the hospital a week earlier um, to come and see me. And she had such severe um, lower disease. And I'm trying to keep it vague, you know, just for HIPAA reasons. But um, uh, but uh, it's such severe disease, I really thought, and she's in chronic pain, dehydrated, underweight, um, in and out of ERs almost every month, okay? 
And this is going on from six and a half to age 22. And, and she's been on multiple medications. So it was an easier decision to help her understand that I think that you should consider this. There's one other medicine, but I, I don't think it's going to work, but I think surgery is best. And she said, nope, I, I, I don't want surgery. I don't want the ostomy. I absolutely want to try the very last medicine, even though the chances are slim for my type of disease. So, you know, you can't push, you can't change people. You, you, you have to be upfront with them when you think they're harming themselves, but you have to respect their ultimate wish. And um, we got the medicine teed up for her and uh, she was going to get it today. And yesterday she messaged and she said, you know what? I went to the resources. I talked to the people that you introduced me to and I understand your reasoning. You didn't force me. And she told me, I, I appreciate that. And she said, she thinks that this is the right decision. And um, you know, we don't take, I don't take satisfaction in telling patients that they, that they have to go through with this. But I, I do think that when I make, help them realize or make that decision that for this young lady, she's going to have a better quality of life. Like this has been holding her back and, and nobody introduced her to any of those resources in all those ER visits ever. It is, it is crazy. It almost feels like it's a disservice. Uh, and actually, arguably, in directing someone to those resources, you're actually saving yourself work in the long run because they're going to be educated, they're going to understand, they're going to be able to make a more informed decision from day to day, not just whenever they are trying to get in to see you, the doctor. And mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's so it's so important. Um, yeah, it's one of the things that um, I find about that was like. With with some of the medications as well, and this is this is one of the, so whenever I was going through my treatment and they were trying, like I was I was in hospital for a couple of months. Going back to whenever they decided that you know surgery is that's the option, and it became sort of like the the, the solution final. And um, one of the interesting things for me was that the medication that they were offering was that I had to sign off on the medication because of the 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 risks hmm. that went along with that. So although you're and I was wondering like what what's the balancing act like for yourself as a doctor whenever you're then looking at those treatment pathways and then the risks that are involved with doing that? Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, every patient's different and all the medicines they have similar but still different risks. And some of them are predictable. Some of them reactivate dormant infections, um, and, like, such as tuberculosis or hepatitis B. Some, not all. Some have a slightly increased risk for, for reactivation of chickenpox and giving people shingles and zoster. Um, and some have a risk of increasing blood clots sometimes too, not all. So, and, and also melanoma, right? So all these different things, and these are just a few examples off the top of my head, so you have to listen to the patient and pay attention to their health history. You have to look for things they haven't been diagnosed for that nobody ever even thought to look for before you put them on the medicine because you want to make sure that you've minimized the risk to them. And I found that when you're thoughtful, when you're not just like reactionary, like, oh, you have X disease, you get treatment Y, right? If you, if you do the digging and you look for... Uh, you know, you're thoughtful about screening them appropriately, minimizing that risk, not just jumping the gun and putting them on the drug. That's how you minimize the risk. 
That's, that's, that's exactly how you minimize those complications from ever happening. But every patient's different. Likewise, even if a patient is extremely low risk, it pays to be upfront with them that they're still at risk and explain it to them. Don't gloss over it. That's what I tell docs that I train um, because uh, you kind of said it earlier. Um, it helps. You're, you're, you're doing the work in advance. You're, 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 you're teaching them. You're educating them in advance because if it ever down the line, um, they need to know that knowledge either for themselves or because they're teaching another patient, right? They'll be better off, right? So it always pays to talk more in the beginning. Um, I, I can't emphasize that enough. It sounds so simple. Talk to your patient, educate, teach, listen to your patient, um, answer their question. It's, it's this, the easiest thing, but in medical education, somewhere, some, once you get into practice, it can be easily lost. But if you go back to the roots of just listening, having a conversation, uh, you can educate the patient safely. But everybody's different. Yeah, no, and it's that's I think that's one of the main premises that we're really pushing in this chat is like everybody is so different. There's a lot of the discussions that I have, one of the main things that we take away is have an open mind and and experiment to it within obviously a certain degree. Yeah. Because some things that work for you might not work for somebody else, and something that works for them might not work for you, but it might, and that's that's the sort of the point, I think. Um Within medicine as well, like it's, we're just talking about the risks. One of the, the, the main points that we wanted to chat about was, um, as well as intimacy, was looking at contraception and pregnancy and looking at that fertility thing and sort of what considerations are there, there and what sort of complications have you come across for sort of women and that, and also, I guess, men in a way. A yeah, bit. yeah, men, you know, if you're listening to this, applies to you too. Um, and, and, and I'm talking about both men and women as patients and uh, men and women as partners um, because you're both involved in the reproductive process, right, and procreation. Um, you know, just one thing before, before I launch into that about risk and stuff, if, if patients are listening, as you're listening to this, um, tried and tested true method of getting all your questions answered are, is writing your questions down or dictating it into Siri, um, what, you know, as, as you think of them, uh, and then taking them all to your doctor or messaging them through the electronic medical record portal. Um, uh, you, you should do that you know, every time you think of a question or hear of a side effect or read something questionable online. Copy and paste that web link so you can share it with your doctor. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Some of it's purposely done unfortunately, to take advantage of patients. And some of it's just downright false, and some of it's true. And mm -hmm. so it's important that you remember your source and bring it to them and ask your doctor. Don't leave any question unanswered before you start therapy, because you don't want to question your therapy after you start. Um, true as well, because like I've seen a number of times now, um, like spam bots mm -hmm. appear on some of the most unrelated posts that I have made, but they appear on my posts and I, I do my best to delete them, but it's generally a very weird written message talking about some doctor somewhere who's got, who's cured it. And um, it'll be various things to either just generally IBD or it'll be a specific Crohn's colitis diagnosis. And it's just like, 
they they do exist and there's also people out there that are making a significant amount of money from proclaiming to have cures from a diet perspective or from a lifestyle perspective um i know a couple of people that do a lot of things in that avenue but they don't pretend it to be a cure they pretend it to be a remission and that they're able to do certain things within their remit of control or their locus of control that has limited the medical input into their disease, but they are open and transparent that they still technically have the disease, although they haven't had symptoms for five plus years. Yeah. Which I think was fair, but. Yeah, it's fair. And you know, I, likewise, I have some, some patients and IBD advocates who are, are, are friends and colleagues of mine who have their own individual regimen that's worked for them. But like we talked about before, what works for one may not work for all. Certainly be open to it, explore it. A couple of tips to see through myth and misconception online and to prevent yourself from being exploited about something is if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If you read an article that claims some type of evidence, see, uh, read further, like read the entire article. And uh, articles that are not true are just kind of full of fluff, you can tell. Look for citations and references. If there's references, Google the references, make sure they're real. Somebody just didn't type it up to make it look like it looked real. And unfortunately, I really hate to say this, but there are people on social media who look like doctors, uh, talk like doctors, uh, wear white coats, but actually have no such credentials. And so it's very easy to, to stalk somebody online <laughs> and figure out what their true credentials are. So um, again, it, you know, always question if something sounds, you know, sounds too good to be true. You know, coming back to our topic, which um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about, which is men and women, and when it comes to uh, reproduction uh, and intimacy, right? Those are um, uh, not necessarily mutually exclusive, but two individual categories, nevertheless. When it comes to reproduction, we, let's let's tackle that, and then we're going to talk about intimacy, or as I like to call it, sexy time. Um, <laughs> so for reproduction, I like the condor. <laughs> that's what it is right yeah. if we, we talk about it too it, it becomes too sterile right how do you how do you you know it, it's tiring to talk about it in such a sterile way otherwise but speaking of, of sterility or reproductivity there's a big misconception in our world of IBD amongst patients that if they have surgery that they can't reproduce or have a baby or have a child and that's not true so when we have um, pelvic surgery um, we remove intestines and we can create scar. Um, we call these adhesions. And that scar and adhesions, many IBD patients know well because they think of that as uh, causing small bowel obstructions. Well, it can also wrap around the fallopian tubes. And uh, that's important because it may create an inhospitable, inhospitable environment for ova or eggs. Um, and this is important because it gets us to the to the central aspect of fertility versus fecundity. So fertility means, can you get pregnant? Can an egg and a sperm get together and make an embryo? And that's different from fecundity, which is, is the environment for an embryo healthy enough to take, take itself to gestation? So um, oftentimes uh, the, the women with IBD, their fertility is preserved, okay? So if you're going to go through a surgery um, in which you have a, especially a pelvic surgery, um, it's very important that you ask your doctor, is this surgery such that I should talk about 
um, uh, reproducing before surgery if I have that luxury? Or do I need to talk to a, uh, a specialized OB, we call maternal fetal medicine specialist, about freezing my eggs? You know, is that a conversation, you know, up front when it comes to surgery? Um, that, that's important if you think your fertility, if, if you think your eggs or ovaries may be removed for some reason. That's not common, by the way, not common at all in IBD surgery. Fecundity, um, again, is where if the fallopian tubes are enwrapped with scar around it, then the path by which the egg you know, or embryo travels down the fallopian tube to implant it down in the uterus may be um, not perfect. There may be a buildup of fluid which changes pH uh, around, right? If you have intestinal inflammation and that intestine is near the, the, the fallopian tube, it, the, the inflammation hits the fallopian tube and may impact the ability or the environment, again, for that egg to carry itself to gestation. So all these, th th this is fecundity, right? Uh, so that's the big difference. So if you have surgery, it does not mean your fertility is impacted. If you have surgery, your fecundity may be impacted, but you should address it before your surgery. So when we talk to women, IBD women, about surgery, we talk about fertility and fecundity up front. Um, when we talk to men, obviously women are the ones who have the hard, hard part, right? They're the ones who do all the hard work, really. Men do yeah. the hard work for like two minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? The, the men... They have uh, their concern, and rightly so, is um, will there be nerve damage to cause uh, dysfunction in erection um, or arousal or lubrication? And those are, those are justified. Um, typically, that's extremely rare, but that's something that, the, that one should think about, right? It's the post-operative effects. Preoperative and, and post-operative men's fertility, the ability to produce sperm, um, is not typically disabled at all. You can produce sperm. Um, erection and uh, lubrication or painful ejaculation, those are very uncommon uh, side effects of, of surgery, but they can happen if there has been unintentional nerve damage. I think that's one of the, one of the um, from a male perspective, that's one of the scariest discussions that you, I think we will have vis-a-vis having a surgical um, opinion for IBD. And I know that whenever I was going through mine, it was, it was the second surgery that they ended up because the first one was more or less an emergency. Um, so there wasn't time to do anything. Um, but the second surgery, they said like, look, if you want to, you can leave a sperm sample. There is a risk. It's a low risk, but there is a risk that if we nick a nerve, that you could have some lasting damage that could affect it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Like one of the things that this topic has taught me is that women are very complicated um, within the sort of not not just uh, not just when you marry them, but like as in terms of women and their reproductive things and the the processes that women seem to go through. It it, it all it just seems to add a layer of complexity at all, at every path and just little things like their um when they have surgery that their ovaries and their um internal stuff in and around the vagina might fall back because there obviously isn't an internal sort of structure there that, that is propping it up things like that that might cause 
um, issues within not necessarily conceiving, but actually the conception fears. And as they move through the stages of pregnancy, uh, it becomes a, a high risk pregnancy, so to speak. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what sort of is there any advice or what's what's your experience with um, with women that are transcending through the stages of pregnancy? Uh, going through surgery and after pregnancy uh, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, going through surgery, the impact of potentially surgery and and being pregnant, and then what is it like with them having an ostomy whilst pregnant? So, couple, so wow, we could probably devote shows to every one of those topics actually. <laughs> so, general rules of thumb, and then specific rules of thumb. General rules of thumb um, for any female um, who is planning on conceiving. Um, surgery or no surgery, you should talk to your doctor about how your medications affect your, um, are, are, are they safe to breastfeed? Are they safe to conceive? Um, are they safe to, um, uh, uh, continue and breastfeed, you know, after, after delivery, um, methotrexate is a medicine that causes teratogenic birth defects. We do not encourage, um, uh, women on methotrexate to conceive, um, the biologic uh, medicines like uh, anti-TNFs, anti-integrins, and anti-IL-1223. Um, I don't want to use drug names and, uh, just so I don't favor a company, but those three classes of biologics are generally regarded as safe for conception, safe throughout pregnancy, and safe postpartum, and safe for breastfeeding uh, by most authorities. And there's a lot of data on different classes of those, especially anti-TNFs, which are the most common ones like infliximab or adalumumab, sertoluzumab, those drugs have a lot of data. And the other ones like vedoluzumab and ustekinumab um, also have uh, uh, burgeoning data for their safety in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Um, uh, for, for men, sulfasalazine uh, may actually decrease uh, sperm motility. So your swimmers are great. I mean, so your sperm is great, but they may not swim so well. So you have to be off the medicine. Typically we say for about three to six months in order for that motility to recover so that your swimmers uh, can go find their egg. Um, so those are kind of the general highlights. Um, also for women, there's a rule of thirds. Um, about a third of women during pregnancy will flare. Um, a third of, well, meaning get worse from when they started before pregnancy. A third will stay the same. So whatever disease activity they had, a third will stay the same. And another third will actually get better. And we don't know why we have a third of women who will actually get better. And uh, so some women actually have said, I prefer to stay pregnant. <laughs> well, that covers all bases, really, doesn't it? You're either going to get worse, better or worse than the same. Yeah. And, and it turns out that the better you are in remission before conception, the, more, the less likely you are to flare during pregnancy, which is good because during pregnancy, significant flares are just treated with prednisone, to be honest. And we don't like steroids to begin with, right? And how, how much does that impact? Is there an impact if you if um, someone is pregnant and they're going into flare, and obviously you guess like a quite a, let's say quite a significant flare. Is there any impact or risk to the baby, or is is that the risk only to the the the, the mother or the carrier? In in the most severe cases, yes, there could be harm uh, to the mother and the baby if the mother's nutrition and hydration are sacrificed early early on in. In, in the early weeks of, of pregnancy, if the severe inflammation is, is high enough, then you can have miscarriage. But if um, other, otherwise, you know, so short of those very extreme scenarios, mm -hmm. um, most patients do not severely flare. But if they flare, 
no, the babies um, may be a little low, uh, uh, low weight for birth. Um, they, they may be born a little early, not necessarily, not, not necessarily premature by any means, but all those babies still come out healthy and still, uh, we believe, grow naturally to normal height, normal weight thereafter. So the majority of women who flare will still have healthy babies, but, but the prednisone effect, right? If we need to treat them with prednisone, that's not, that's not healthy because then they get significant swelling. Um, sometimes it contributes to gestational diabetes um, and it's, it's hard on them physically and, and, and mentally, um, especially to, to lose some of that weight post-pregnancy too. Uh, and typically they've been on the prednisone for so many weeks, they, it takes them a long time to wean off the prednisone even after delivery. So it, for, for those several reasons, it's really important to try to be in remission before intentional conception of a baby. And then the more likely you're going to do great. Now for any women um, going or men going through surgery, right? So this is separate from pregnancy. They may require some type of small bowel surgery or ostomy surgery. I recommend all women then to have a consult with a high-risk uh, OB specialist. They're also known as maternal fetal medicine specialist so that they can be on board, right? And determine is a vaginal delivery appropriate for them? Is a cesarean delivery appropriate for them? Typically women um, who have Crohn's, who've had fistulizing disease in their anal area or their vaginal uh, area, we typically may not recommend a vaginal delivery. We may insist upon a cesarean. Um, but otherwise, most other women can um, uh, have a vaginal delivery. And the other reason to see them is because you may not need them at all, but if there's a complication during uh, delivery, you have them on hand. So I always want the OB, maternal fetal medicine specialist, to talk to the colorectal uh, specialist doing the surgery. And then, Johnny, I was really impressed to hear you say that your docs um, actually said, hey, do you, you know, at least brought it up and said there's a small risk. Do you want to save a sperm sample? I, I don't think that happens uh, commonly uh, here. I mean, most of the male patients I've spoken to, they haven't had that brought up to them. That's something we're working on. And again, tides are changing, uh, but that's not necessarily a common thing here. So I'm happy that they offered that to you. Yeah, I mean, one of the, it's, a, it's a private thing that you have to do. So it's, you do have to fund it for yourself in the UK. And I'm not sure what other countries maybe do with that. So there may be a, a socioeconomic um, privilege that I might have there um, in, in being able to afford or had, had been able to afford the cost of that. But thankfully, nothing happened. And I've been able to have children naturally. Um, one of the interesting comments says, so Eleanor, who's, who's been a guest on the show, is also a super fan um, of yours. And she just wanted to ask, why, why is it important or why are some women advised to have babies prior to having their rectum removed or having a, a, a total prostectomy? Eleanor, that's a great question. And uh, that shows a lot of insight, just that you asked the question. Thank you. Um, it's because, you know, the, the rectum is right behind the vagina and, and the uterus, ovaries, and fallopian tube. And so when you do a proctectomy, you can create a lot of scar um, in the pelvis that can lead to decreased fecundity that I was talking about. Um, you can also theoretically injure nerves sometimes, um, which can you know, lead to painful conception, so dis uh, painful intercourse, dyspareunia, so which will make it conception very naturally, very challenging to do if you have painful intercourse. 
So typically, um, we don't recommend um, a full proctectomy until you think you're, you're done with your um, childbearing uh, years. I hope that's a great question. And a, and a very good consideration that needs to be that more patients need to be aware of. And again, it just it just it just yeah, it just keeps me thinking like how complicated this disease actually is for women and how many how many well, I don't know if it's true how many more questions they have compared to men, but it just seems like there are so many more variables for them to consider. Like one of the other ones um has blown my mind is talking about contraception. So for generally speaking for a bloke. Um, contraception is a condom that is it that's I, mean, I know there is there's been some trials and some drugs apparently that will uh, slow or stop sperm production i'm not sure how, how how i feel about that kind of stuff and the risks that may be prolonged but if you do use that um but from a female perspective what what are the risks for them um you know in terms of taking biologics or having an ostomy and and or different types of Crohn's or colitis. Yeah. And, and you asked this question earlier. I didn't, I didn't answer it fully. So I apologize, but you asked about having an ostomy and getting pregnant. And the, and the great answer is you can have an ostomy and have a healthy, beautiful pregnancy. And that's a normal and common thing to do all the time. So having an ostomy uh, does not prevent you from having a healthy, beautiful, normal pregnancy. Um, so uh, don't let that hold you back. Um, we, we hear of, uh, there's a term that we have heard called voluntary childlessness, which means um, there's a preconceived notion that if you have IBD or have surgery, an ostomy, people think that they cannot have a baby. And that is utterly false, completely wrong. Um, if you're listening to this or you know somebody who can hear this information, you can have a normal, healthy pregnancy um, if you have an ostomy. No issues at all. That happens all the time. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, not a, it's not a question. It's not a chance. It's just normal to be able to have a baby with an ostomy. Um, when it comes to contraception, um, there are many different types of contraception that are available for women. And you're right, less so for men. Um, for women, there's depot formula, there's oral contraceptive hormonal pills. Um, there's also, uh, you know, dental dams, you know, which are a little more cumbersome to use. And then there's also IUDs. Um, they're all uh, effective uh, methods of contraception. One, one thing I will say, though, is that when you have inflammatory bowel disease of any sort, there is a small but increased risk of developing blood clots, DVT, deep venous thromboembolism. And uh, different contraceptive formulas carry different risks of causing or creating hypercoagulability, thickening of the blood to create a blood clot. Um, and so the one that is of the lowest propensity, the lowest risk for that is actually IUDs. So IUDs are one of the oldest methods and forms, you know, of modern day contraception, and they're very effective and don't carry the highest risks um, of, of, of blood clot. So I think when it comes to women's health, talking about pregnancy, breastfeeding, contraception, conception, all of these things need to be addressed with your OB. So, you know, when you have a, if you're, if you're a female patient listening to this, when you go to your routine gyne visit for your annual pap smear, um, if you're an IBD patient or not, you know, ask them more questions, right? Ask you that opportunity, you know, make that doc or that hospital earn their bill of service from your insurance company, right? Um, don't let it be a quick exam. 
say, hey, on this visit, I'd like to talk about um, do my medicine, how do my medicines affect me to have a baby, pregnancy, contraception, breastfeeding, every one of these subjects. Um, for men, you're right, for contraception, uh, there's less options. Um, the, the, the male uh, birth control pill is still something that's being developed and there's a lot of um, lack of acceptance. I think women are far more open to modulation of their gonads than men are. And I think that, you know, and I can relate to that. I'm a man. Um, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's the culture that we have grown in. It's not necessarily the right way to think, um, but that's just what's been ingrained. But that is changing. For men, though, the most responsible thing, though, for contraception, if they're not ready to be a father, is to be responsible and use a condom. Um, just since we're talking about it, there's other things that men and women can contract and spread, um, such as HPV, our human papillomavirus, which is causing cervical cancer. It causes penile warts and is also one of the most common causes of oropharyngeal cancer just from oral sex in both men and women. And it's on the rise in men, especially. So, and it can be transmitted through um, orogenital sex or oral oral sex if your partner already has it. So you have to be safe and pick your partners well. Um, when, it comes to, um, uh, when it comes to HPV, be smart, wrap up. Um, both um, and, and women should ins insist a male partner to use a condom. And um, in our LGBTQ population, who are often left out of this is you know separate from contraception, of course. Just is just protection from STIs. Always uh, use a condom, in my opinion, to prevent the transmission of STIs or sexually transmitted infections from anorectal intercourse. Yeah, I think I think that's something to live by, really. <laughs> Don't be a fool and wrap that tool. I think is the slogan we were uh, told in school. But yeah, it's it's uh, when you mentioned the um, was it HPVI? Is that a, is that a strain of herpes or is that something? Uh, no, HPV. Again. HPV. HPV. Human papillomavirus. It's um, it's a different type of virus um, that can cause cervical cancer and mm -hmm. cause um, cancers of the ear, nose, and throat. Um, it can cause uh, condylomas or genital warts. So um, there's a vaccine for it. There's a quadrivalent vaccine. Um, in America, it's called Gardasil. Um, mm -hmm. that we can give um, uh, young men and women as early as age nine uh, up to the late 20s. Um, so, and it's, I believe it's available in the UK as well and, and, and part of a standard of care to vaccinate people. So that's something preventable. Um, and is it, is it one of those things where you can have it, but not know it as in like be dormant with it? Oh, hundred percent. Most people have it and don't even know they have it. Like the, the many people have HPV and just don't know they have it. Um, the, the vaccine protects you against, um, you know, the four most common virulent strains that have been associated with bad disease, but of course, there's, there's tons of strains of HPV that protects you against um, at least four that are very, very virulent and can cause bad, bad cancers and bad disease to develop. But you can have it, not know it. So that's why it's always really important to pick who you're sexually intimate with and be really safe. It's just a, it's probably a bit more ignorant on the topic. Um, but I'm just wondering, do you think people with IBD being as it's a lot of times people may be on immunosuppressants, but it's also an immune um, disease. Um, do you think they're more susceptible to picking up these types of infections? It's a good question. And, you know, to my knowledge, it's not well studied if IBD patients on immunosuppression are at increased risk to contract sexually transmitted illnesses. 
I don't think we have good studies that are that are large uh, to, to say. Um, certainly being on immunosuppression may increase the risk of infections in general, um, but very small compared to the risk when you're on chronic steroids, which is far higher risk of, of getting infections. As far as STIs, and I don't, I, I'll be honest, I don't know the true answer there. Um, mm. But uh, you know what? It's about time that I look it up again, just to see. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, one, of, uh, one of my past interviewees mentioned is that depending on where your ostomy might be situated, it could, it could be a deciding factor in the contraception used because her ostomy is quite high um, and therefore, because it's, she's missing there for a certain part of her small intestine that would normally absorb the pills or the tablets or a certain part of her intestinal tract anyway. And I'm just wondering what sort of, what's your thoughts on that? You know, it's possible, you know, different pills are um, going to be formulated to be absorbed at different parts of the intestinal tract, but it depends really on how much small intestine has been removed. So if you have had a colectomy and minimal small intestine was removed for surgical technical reasons, then, then you should be able to probably absorb um, most pills. I, I don't know, uh, you know, this particular, uh, you know, friend's uh, surgical anatomy, but it sounds like they may have had um, a specific section or more uh, section removed. So I think it's usually, it's probably a, um, not necessarily unique, but a, a rare circumstance. But if you have had, um, but I think it's something when you talk to your OB about, mm -hmm. uh, if you've had surgery, it's important to know what happened in your surgery. Um, don't be afraid to ask your doctor and point to a diagram. Don't feel stupid. Patients say they feel stupid. Don't feel stupid. Um, point, have a doctor point to a diagram of the anatomy of your intestine, of a normal healthy intestine without surgery, and ask them which parts were removed and how much. They just mm -hmm. need to give you a ballpark so you can go to your OB and ask. But by and large, um, if you've just had a colectomy, you should be able to absorb most pills, no issue. Um, if you've had more small intestinal surgery, it may affect the choice. Yeah, I think it's re it's really interesting, actually. The, the main um, the main stay is again just to to talk, to communicate, ask the questions. I liked your tip actually earlier about um, about right, as soon as you have a question, pop into your head, try and write it down. Or record it on on Siri or other yeah. devices are available. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just like that that communication piece, which is something that we actually started talking about way back at the start of the podcast, um, is such an important aspect. And like as much as we might do our bit as a patient advocate, we're not qualified. We're not aware of the intricacies of your your medical case, uh, whereas the treating physician will be or a physician involved at any stage of your, your treatment, be it sexual health or be it um, involvement within this, will be able to have a better understanding, a better knowledge of where you are yeah. as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. What we, what we, what, you know, the tidbits that I'm sharing here are um, the bulk of what we would talk about in a visit. Um, but there's certainly more, there's so, there's so many different caveats and intricacies based on your anatomy, your history, and this is why it comes down to personalized health, individualized, you know, uh, uh, management. Um, so um, I think it's really important that you ask those questions and that you feel that the doctor uh, or nurse or whomever they may be has, you, you feel that they've asked you enough questions, right, to help you make these decisions about what you're putting in your body.
No, totally. I think I think where we fit in as patient advocates is is less to talk about what you should do, and that's something I I, um, I know my friend uh, Joseph Greenley, who's he's a powerlifter. He actually just put a post out today because he's just got being allowed to go back to his gym and uh, to start lifting again, which is which is fantastic. And I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing him compete again soon. But uh, one of his posts was that he gets messaged a lot about returning to lifting. And uh-huh. and returning to sport, um, and he he's very open that he is not a medical professional, and that his advice is not going to have a medical basis, and that he can only talk from his own experience. And he basically he's he's very conservative with the advice he gives as well, which is brilliant. And I think that's our place as advocates coming from a non-medical profession, is that we're here to sort of reduce the taboo, make you feel less embarrassed about asking the question, less embarrassed about your treatment pathway and hopefully improve your relationship with the disease and with the community and your healthcare team. But we're not here to really say, no, that doctor shouldn't have said that or, you know, and, and that sometimes, you know, when you go into the forums, you can see where there's been a a post, which and generally, you know, I do understand people are coming from the best place in the majority of time. But yeah, we're not we're not here to second guess a medical professional. And yeah, we should never because you're not aware of all of the facts. And that's yeah, everyone is different, right? That's a theme that's come up in our conversation. Everyone is individually different. So yeah, everything here we is really gen- general medical advice. It's good advice, in my opinion. I'm biased because I'm giving it. <laughs> but I think that um, go to your doctor, ask them uh, how how this information um, applies to you. You know, this is a resource. This broadcast, this channel helps give you perhaps thoughts or ideas you hadn't thought about, right? Questions that you never thought to ask. Hopefully, it gives you that. And you're writing down questions to ask your doctor based on the content that we've talked about so far. Yeah, and it's 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 really interesting as well. Like uh, from uh, from a UK perspective, we've got less choice. But from an American perspective, a number of guests have talked about challenging your the doctor, challenging your your medical team, because particularly within the IBD world, you're going to be with them for a long period of time, and it's having the ability to choose potentially based obviously on your insurance and sort of where you, where you are geographically um, is, is a, I guess is a big bonus, but it's also something that you should really take seriously. So while I got a lot of the guys have said, like, don't just go to the first doctor and be happy, challenge the doctor, ask them lots of questions and make sure you're comfortable because essentially you're there. You're setting, you're creating a team yeah, and you don't want to have someone you don't trust in your team. So you, you've got to make make sure that that is a good fit and it's a tight fit. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. We we're we're lucky that many patients, not all, um, do have more choice in who their doctor is. But the medical system here is so complex that it's not necessarily that some patients may not know who to go to still, um, or for other reasons they may be tied into one system. So the the medical system here, in my opinion, this is just my opinion across America is so ridiculously complex um, that it really disadvantages some patients. But no doubt, we, we still live in a privileged society, uh, but not. But but things have really changed in 2020. Um, and uh, I, I'll just leave it there. I won't get political. <laughs> well, it's, it's, let's just say it's a whole new world, shall we? 
Um, so like we we kind of talked about it a, a fair bit, um, but what would your advice be? Someone who's struggling with their diagnosis of whatever form of IBD, um, what sort of advice would you give them? Where would you direct them? So uh, just in general terms of general IBD information, um, yeah. the great thing about living now is that you don't need to search the nether regions of the dark internet to find good resources, okay? Um, in each country, in many countries, um, there uh, exists a Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of some sort. So I know in the, in the United States, we have the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, ccfa.org. And then you also have the you know, Crohn's and Colitis UK, um, uh, which is a, obviously um, a wonderful organization. And in both our countries, I know we have other uh, offshoot brands uh, or nonprofits um, that are, some are gender focused, um, some are uh, nutrition focused, right? Some are ostomy focused, okay? And many of these organizations partner with each other. The point is there are many different types of communities and uh, they all have good information, um, especially the nonprofit ones. Seek them out. Um, uh, just like you get different, you want different consultants and different opinions, go to different websites and that will give you a more realistic uh, uh, composite or balanced picture of the information. So Crohn's and Colitis Foundation in most countries are nonprofit. That's a good sign that they are, they're not financially driven and they're there to give you sound advice. Also, I encourage new patients to find out their local chapter of the Crohn's and Colitis organization. There's different sub-chapters, and those chapters have a committee, have a board of volunteers, and they can usually tell you who are the IVD, who are the doctors in your community, who are the dietitians in your community, or nutritionists, or, 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 or fitness specialists who are really interested or motivated in taking care of IBD patients, okay? Right? The best doctor recommendation comes from patients, in my opinion. They'll tell you what's up, okay? Um, then in terms of ostomy education, um, I, I did mention um, uh, our organization, the United Ostomy Associates of America. That website is ostomy.org. And um, uh, that's a wonderful website. Um, cancer societies also have a lot of ostomy information sometimes too. That's, that may be useful, even though you don't have cancer. Um, but those are probably the, the, the two. There's another plug I'll, I'll put for women who may be listening to this broadcast, and that is um, Girls with Guts. And they're an all-female organization, 18 and up. They're fantastic. It's all women who may, not necessarily, may have IBD, may have ostomies, may not. But it's a, it's a place for women with uh, chronic illness of the intestine to get together. And they have their uh, own communities. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, those are just a few organizations that I think are, are, are wonderful for good education. Yeah, and I think um, particularly for women as well, I think the gut, Gutsy Girls are fantastic. And I, I actually follow them. Um, and, yeah, they do so much. And there are so many um, things that, they, that seem to happen and that they seem to be involved with. And I think it's, 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 it's a really positive um, area. Hold on a second. We've just got a question in from um, uh, Kevin. Kevin's asking us, what are the top three tips or pieces of advice for a non-ostomate dating ostomate in terms of support and intimacy? Ah, very good question. Thanks, Kevin. Um, 
I'm really happy to see that there's a partner of an ostomate, okay, who doesn't have an ostomy listening to this broadcast. So you're an example <laughs> of the type of partner that ostomates perhaps watching, our ostomate community watching this broadcast want to have. So um, I'm just going to start by saying one of the myths of having an ostomy is that you can't have a relationship. Wrong, completely false, total lie, okay? BS, get that out of your head. Whoever's telling you that, get them out of your life. Okay, you can have a beautiful relationship. Someone as, as special as Kevin here. Now, Kevin, your question was, as a non-ostimate, um, what are some advice uh, that I can have uh, in terms of support and intimacy for my ostimate partner and for yourself? So one, it sounds like you already had a conversation, right? So your partner who has the ostomy um, disclosed, right? Um, uh, their uh, history, that they have an ostomy, and hopefully that happened, you know, early enough in the relationship. For you, I think it's, um, you know, just acknowledging, making them feel comfortable um, uh, and, and, and showing that, showing them that you feel comfortable, right? So uh, when I talk about intimacy, intimacy isn't about sex. Intimacy, it can be holding hands, affection, cuddling, right? Showing that you're comfortable with um, your ostomy partner and them having an ostomy. I think also recognizing that some days um, your partner who has the ostomy uh, isn't going to feel well. They may have some cramps or spasm. Their stoma site might be leaking or inflamed. And then just, you know, asking if you can help them in terms of stoma care, stoma cleaning, stoma prep, or just giving them space. <laughs> Sometimes, um, you know, they just need space. So respecting uh, uh, boundaries. Um, so supporting them that you uh, love and understand them um, uh, with having an ostomy, which I think you obviously already do. Um, asking if they need help or need space uh, if they're having uh, cramp or discomfort with their ostomy that day. Um, and then also um, uh, just pretend it's not, you know, if, you know, when it comes to intimacy, our partner may have uh, anxiety or stress about having their ileostomy, their ileostomy or colostomy. So making them feel at ease, especially when it comes to sexy time, um, you know, uh, you know, set, setting the mood, you know, forgetting about it, right? Just, just, you know, just think that it's not there and show them that you don't care, right? Um, one question I get asked uh, is, you know, how do couples get comfortable with the ostomy? And sometimes it's helpful and the ostomate has to be comfortable with this, obviously. This has to be the ostomate's initiation but sometimes exploring the ostomy together, right? Teaching your partner about the ostomy or, or asking your ostomate partner to teach you about their ostomy. Sometimes a great place to do this is the shower. Sexy time is fun in the shower, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, that's a good place to show it. Um, I think this is actually one of the things that made me realize how special my now wife is because initially when we got, like I, I, I was in no way ashamed of an ostomy. I, was, I went the complete, opposite end of the spectrum whenever I ended up with an ostomy bag it's like it was a, generally the first thing I talked about in fact I almost now feel like I've got nothing to talk about now I've got a j pouch but um that's that's aside she whenever she discovered that I had an ostomy she was so intrigued with it she just wanted to see it all the time she wanted to sort of like explore like what was it if it was making a noise she'd want to see like why is it making a noise like so like all of those in interesting things i guess that an ostomy can do but she yeah. was just really intrigued with it and that was that reinforced things for me as well in terms of like 
that body acceptance, that uh, reduced a complete stress about being intimate just because the person themselves were actually so excited about this uniqueness. 100%. And, and you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Like, you know, she showed interest, your wife. And, and you know, the worst thing you can do, I th- one of the worst things I think that you can do um, as a partner of an ostomate is not show an interest or not mention the ostomy, right? You don't want it to be the elephant in the room, right? It's, um, you know, ostomies have their, their, their own mind. Sometimes they, they gurgle or pass gas or liquid at, at, you know, at a, in, in a quiet time in a movie or whatever. So they're there, but you have to make it just normal, right? You have to acknowledge it. And if you don't acknowledge it uh, in a new relationship as a person dating an ostomate or, or a spouse, it's going to make it awkward and it's going to be result in unconscious body language that translates to very negative tension between you and your partner. So, you know, being supportive, showing interest in the ostomy in their well-being, giving them space if they're not feeling well. Um, and, um, you know, being part of either ostomy care, ostomy conversation, just showing interest. I think that's the biggest thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that was a great question. Thank you very much, Kevin, for, for asking it. Yeah, really good question. Um, I've reached a part of the show now um, where I call it the three truths. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lewis Howes. He's quite big in the US in terms of the business sort of um, market and uh, like a, as in like a thinker of business. Um, I did a really interesting book, actually, um, called The Mask of Masculinity. which um, talks about the different masks that men wear that like the sort of the the sports bravado and things like that and stuff that we hide behind to be a real man. So it's actually really interesting reading and it can lean a lot into how generally men perceive themselves and how they conduct themselves in society. So so it's a, I find it a very useful book. Anyway, I digress. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read that book. I love to read. So that sounds like I'll put it on my list. So the, the three truths essentially is it's your, your last day on earth many years from now and everything you've ever done has been erased, no longer exists. Um, but you get you have the opportunity now to leave three truths or three life lessons that you would want the world to know or to do. What would your three truths be? Okay, so let me, let me make sure I understand the question. <laughs> so if uh, end, of, end of the world or end, end of time, what are the three life lessons? Is that it? Yeah, three life lessons that you would want to leave the world. Okay. Wow, I know you're going to get all deep on me, Johnny. All right, let me think about this. Um, one, one already comes to mind that I'm, I'm sure many can, can uh, identify with, which is uh, much the golden rule. As corny and as cheesy as that is, it's a, it's a rule I live by and has served me well, which is do unto others as, as you would do unto them. And I say that because it's, uh, you know, I, I think that in this life, we, we have uh, grown in societies where we live selfishly. And um, I think when you live selflessly, uh, you, it's more fulfilling and you appreciate, uh, you know, uh, life. Uh, and, and the things that you have, the material things better. That brings me to probably to the second life lesson, which is um, don't ignore um, the ones you love. Don't, don't take them for granted um, because uh, you can uh, be the very best um, uh, 
police officer or the very best uh, teacher or Wall Street broker or whatever, but um, the people who support you at home, um, who love you unconditionally, um, you, you can't ignore, ignore them. You have to remember that they're there and show them that you love them. Um, because the moment you start taking them for granted too, too, too long, um, you, you, may, you may need them the most and they may not be there for you. So don't, don't uh, neglect the ones you love um, and support you. And the third, three, <laughs> um, I would say um, live simply. Um, you know, most of us at the end of the day don't need much, you know. Um, people, my patients who I have known, um, who have uh, passed, uh, meaning have died. Um, they've always, you know, um, given me advice, right? Old timer advice. And much of it has centered around what we just said, those first two lessons. And the third being um, live simply, meaning at the end of their lives, they've done so many things, done this or that, much of it material. They really didn't need much in life to be happy. So live simply means identify the, the, the minimal things that make you happy and live your life fulfilling those things. So if it's your family, for me, it's my family. Make, make your life about your family. If it's um, <laughs> about the well-being of your patient community, um, you know, live your life in a way that you think you're making a difference. And at the end of your life, I think that you're going to be more satisfied and, and have less regret. Now, I am still hopefully relatively young, and I hope that what I say now... <laughs> 30, 40 years from now, I can, I can identify with, but I am, I am inspired by, by those before me. Well, I think, I think you're doing an exceptional job there. And I think if you are doing the same in 34 years, I think you can be exceptionally proud of having achieved that goal. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very, it's, you know, I think that is so true. I, I like to do onto others as you would want done onto yourself and the sort of, sort of brings it back to a, a kind of theme that I'm following a little bit as like a spiritual journey, I, I want to call it. My wife's quite a spiritual person and she's, she's kind of dragged me along, kicking and screaming um, in, into this world. And um, it's, it's, it's been an education and actually it does help me. Like being in the military, we can be quite dogmatic, quite, um, quite aggressive people. And it certainly opened up another avenue from which to view the world. And one of the things I, I've come out of that, which I think I relate to because of my choice of career in the military is to be of service, mm -hmm. to be part of something that is bigger than you and bigger than self. And I think trying to understand that and putting yourself in a position to serve is, is always going to, um, I guess, help, help you feel that you belong, but also help you in the, in the longer run of not being selfish because you're being selfless. Yeah, absolutely. That's um, the way you said that, Johnny. I, I think it helps being in service, of service, is a way of being selfless. It gives greater meaning, you know, greater meaning to our actions rather than just existing, consuming, um, taking. Uh, it gives more meaning and I, I think personal satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, and I, like you mentioned earlier with the social media and things like that, that's one of the the drawbacks of today's world is it is so immediate and it is so consumer based, and that's that is the danger that we just we just consume and we don't actually feel. Um, 
but yeah and then I, I do actually really like and i think actually i can be very talking about doing something like that is bigger than yourself i feel i can be guilty of becoming too involved in that aspect and actually neglecting the ones that i love and the ones that love me and and it's true like your family they see you at your worst you are your worst self with the people you love the most um because you use up all of your good energy in the world like i am I'm, I'm sure i'm not sure if this is your experience but with patients i use up all of my uh energy and my goodwill with the patients and come home and the, the, the smallest thing will send me over the edge at home whereas there's quite a bit of stretch when I'm in clinic. I, I agree with you Johnny and I mean when I say when I said that by no means by no means am I perfect about it. Um, I uh, uh, you know have personal faults of workaholic and, and uh, perfectionism and wanting to do more and more but um, that I've found over my life, um, you know, can sometimes really result in an unhealthy balance of neglecting the ones I love, the ones who are home for me, right? The ones who take care of me when I'm not well. So I've, I've gone through, you know, a realization and shift and, you know, on a daily basis as a, as a physician, as a healthcare provider, um, uh, just in my world that I know that role, my work-life balance is something I'm always working on. And I, there are days where I fail and I am uh, a hypocrite or to what, or, or I don't uphold rather, not a hypocrite, but don't uphold those values that I'm trying to aspire to. And there are other days where I sit back and I go, wow, you know, I did a better job of, 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 of trying to adhere to those ideals, but no one's perfect. But the idea, per, the point, I think one thing, the fact that you asked these questions, I wasn't prepared for it, but I'm glad you did. Cause I like to think about these things. It causes introspection. And if you're listening to this broadcast, you're going to be introspective too. We need these check-ins with ourselves. 2020, the pandemic, burnout, stress, um, it's at an all-time high. And again, it comes back down to how we live our life, what makes us happy. Do we live our, our lives in the service of ourselves or of, our, of others, right? All, all these things, these are existential questions we have to always ask ourselves, pandemic or no pandemic, but this is the time. This is the time to ask ourselves, how do we want to live? What's important to us? Yeah, I think, and that's, it is that, well, that, to me, that is probably the question. Um, but living simply as well, it's like um, the minimalist sort of aspect of living. And, you know, it's so true as well. We do accrue a lot of stuff that actually we don't need. And I think one of the truest forms of realisation of that is whenever you look at a terminally ill patient and they've written their bucket list, generally there isn't a pair of Nikes on there. There isn't, you know, the latest iPhone, you know, it's all very, I don't it's simple is the wrong word, but it's all very, yeah, well, simple. You know, it's like, I want to get to the top of a mountain. I want to walk this beach with someone that I hold dear. I want to do this for one last time. And they're, you know what I mean? And, and they're all things that, you know, may, may bring a tear to our eye when we think about them, but none of them are commercial. None of them are purchasing, generally speaking other than maybe a flight ticket to get there. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's one of the things, like when you really sit down and think about life, like you just asked there and asked that question, like who do you want to be? Where do you want to go? When you boil it all down, there isn't actually that much that you need. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I think I think doing that, and 
I think it's one of the things that actually, again, the military teaches us quite well is that we don't need very much. The fact that we move that often allows us to uh, hold ourselves accountable for that and, you know, shed shed the fat, should we say, um, <laughs> of our lives with all the moves that we do. And um, actually, we've got one coming up. But yeah, I thought they were fantastic, the truths. And again, like they are, they are something that I think if everyone attempted to live by, the world again would be a much better place. And I think we'd be much more, particularly with the first one, we'd be much more forgiving. And I think that's something in today's 2020 world that perhaps we would do well to reflect on more doing unto others as we'd want to do unto ourselves. Because you know, no matter how much harm you've done unto you, if you were to do it unto them, then you're, you are them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it brings me to the part of the show now where I, I would like to just acknowledge yourself a little bit, Neil, um, and just say thank you so much for coming on the show and all of the, the work and efforts that you're doing across the board, just, just by being a doctor who was inspired to explore the avenue of IDB care IBD care um, and you know purely from that aspect thank you so much for all the work you do for our community from a, from a medical professional perspective and your passion all of the things that you've mentioned that you now deliver as part of who you are as a person and as a doctor it's so special to to hear that and for people in our community to know that they can come to someone such as yourself for that treatment I think it's incredible but then add in another level is everything that you do online, everything you do from a social media and off social media perspective and driving awareness for our community, trying to reduce that taboo factor. And just, you know, you messaged me whenever I put it out there saying, I'd be really keen to come on. And like from someone as busy as yourself and involved with so many other avenues of work to find time to sit down for an hour plus with myself and just to hash it hash something out it just it speaks volumes about the person that you are and just thank you so much for coming on thank you very much uh, it's it's my pleasure and I, I reached up at the opportunity because i i really believe in in, in this type of a platform and i i think the the key one key way that we have not done a good job to elevate care quality of care is to better educate our patients and then i think that's exactly what this forum that you have helps us do. So again, thank you for your kind words and um, thanks for the great conversation and, and uh, to all you out there for all these wonderful questions. And again, thank you for having me. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm just gonna pop you off the screen, but stay on the call. Okay, guys, uh, that's bringing us to the end of our show tonight. Thank you so much for everyone who's joined in and for the comments that have been popping up. It's been an amazing conversation, a very explorative conversation. Um, and I have been exceptionally nervous throughout because uh, Neil is such a well-read person on the subject and does so many things to help our community. It's been an absolute honor having him on. So we'll be moving into next week. We're gonna have Yvonne or Crohn's mummy on the show talking on a similar vein of women's health. And we will catch you at the next one. Bye.